but we can do ministry no matter where we are insofar as we love God and love other people. Welcome to Christ and Culture, the podcast of the L. Russ Bush Center for Faith and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Here we'll explore how the Christian faith intersects all avenues of today's culture through conversations with leading thinkers. Welcome to the conversation. Welcome to this week's episode of Christ and Culture. I'm Ken Keithley. And I'm Nathaniel Williams, the editor and content manager here at the Center for Faith and Culture, filling in for Dr. Quinn this week. Today we will talk to Dr. Quinn, though, and we're going to talk to him about faith and work. It's a conversation that touches just about every single one of us in some way. But first, it's time for our segment called In the News. Dr. Keithley, this is a special edition of In the News because you were recently recognized for 15 years of service to Southeastern Seminary. So first off, congratulations for that. Thank you. And it shows you've been here and been committed a long time. Uh, My question for you today, though, related to that is, how has theological education changed in the past 15 years? Can you give us your perspective on that? Yeah, I can't believe I've been at Southeastern for 15 years. It goes to show that time flies when you're having fun. Also, I do want to recognize that there was a there was a significant number of colleagues who were also recognized at that special uh, event because uh, a number of them had been with us for 20 and 25 years, which goes to show you that Southeastern is an attractive place to be because we have so many who are committed uh, to be here with us for a long time. But you're asking, how has theological education changed in these past 15 years? Probably the most significant way that it's changed is the accessibility that we have now. That theological education, uh, when I was a student many decades ago, if someone wanted to go uh, to seminary, this means that you loaded up your family and uh, and the U-Haul, and you moved to whatever seminary God called you to, and this mean, uh, meant that you were going to take uh, a limited number of classes that probably were going to only be available Tuesday through Friday. In fact, I can remember they were only available Tuesday through Thursday. They didn't have classes on Monday and Friday, and, and they were not in three-hour blocks. It was going to be something that often did not work well for a person's schedule. Uh, then they started having night classes, Monday and Friday, three-hour blocks, weekend classes, and then along came this thing called the Internet. And uh, suddenly, now one can take classes in ways, uh, you know, at home, online. This has been a tremendous change, and it's something uh, that we as faculty members, uh, for which we've had to adapt and, and try to figure out how to do this best. We want to provide a quality uh, experience that a person who takes a class, say, like in Theology One, or uh, Creation and Creationism, or Providence and Divine Sovereignty, or uh, all of the other classes that I teach, um, we want students who take that class to have something. We realize we can't replicate exactly the classroom experience, but I want to have something comparable. I want to do as best we can. And every once in a while, there are certain things that actually work better. And you say, how can that be? Well, it's you almost like flip the classroom. Um, I mean, you know, you think, let me switch, switch a different type of course. Think of um, uh, a, a, a course in which, uh, say like someone's taking a college algebra course. You would go in to class, sit 
listen to the professor, think you got what, you know, you took notes, and then you go home and try to do your homework and find out, oh my gosh, I wish, I wish I, I, right. I, yeah. I, I, I thought I had it. Yeah, yeah, I thought yeah. I had it. Well, what you have in a lot of classrooms is, is that now you watch the lectures at home and you work in the classroom on the what used to be called homework, and now you have the professor there, and 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 you have a number of language courses, courses that uh, that that are being preaching courses that are being done uh, in many ways like this. So, theological education, just like education across the board, has been uh, e- enormously impacted by the internet and now the accessibility that theological education is for everyone. Dr. Keithy, let me ask you to look in your crystal ball mm-hmm. and just kind of uh, look to the future f- 15 years from now. Where do you see this going? Oh, I'm one thing I know I don't have is the gift of prophecy. <laughs> There's a lot of things that have occurred in, in the 2020s that I didn't see coming. And so uh, whatever I say next, uh, take with a grain of salt. But I really do see a greater collaboration between seminaries and churches in providing theological education. And this is already a trend that we see happening, especially with our equip centers. Um, We now have... um, We we are now working in collaboration, and I I mean we as in Southeastern Seminary, uh, we're working in collaboration with hundreds, uh, many hundreds of of churches across the Southern Baptist Convention in which our students are going to school at Southeastern while they're also working as interns and as staff members uh, at at an excellent Baptist church and getting that kind of vocational hands-on training I see that uh, only continuing and accelerating. So I'm very excited about that. I think that this is what the goal is of a, of a good seminary education, is that the academic aspect, things that are very difficult to get in a local church, we can provide. And then also the things that we don't do well and can't deliver as well. I mean, I took preaching in a classroom setting, and there's nothing more artificial than preaching a sermon in front of 30 other preachers. Artificial are, and awful. It's and awful. It's one of the most, the it, most it, scary, it, frightening it, experiences. It, yeah, it's not, it's, it's, it's not a positive experience typically. Whereas now, yes, a, a, a student can get the very best in the exegetical and homiletical skills that can come from a classroom setting, and yet they're getting real-world, real-time uh, help in a local church setting. And so I'm very excited about it. I, I think that that's going to continue and accelerate. Just to be honest, the church that I pastor has benefited from that. We've had an intern for the past couple of years, a student here, and I would like to believe that that he's while he's getting a theological education here at Southeastern, he's also been applying that in a local church. And that's a good thing. That's what we want is for people to uh, take what they know and they're learning and apply it to uh, God's plan A for reaching the world, the church, right? Yeah, and and how many times has someone said, "Boy, they didn't teach me that in seminary," right? Because they they've gone through uh, the dealing with business meetings and uh, uh, committees and and deacon and elder boards and funerals and and weddings, all of those things that uh, you know, all the things that can go wrong during a baptism, <laughs> you know, all, all of the all of the real world things. Uh, you're right. We can't teach that in a classroom, but 
being able to partner with good churches that are doing ministry the way it ought to be done, um, we find that this gives an added uh, value to uh, theological education that I think, I think most would say, yeah, that is exactly why I came to school, uh, to, to get good academic training and also good practical training. And if we can wed those two together, then I feel like we've gone a long way. Very good. Well, thank you, Dr. Keith Lee. Thank you for your 15 years. Here's to another 15. And uh, we, appreciate, yeah, we appreciate your work, especially here at the Center for Faith and Culture. One quick note before we uh, jump into our conversation with Dr. Quinn about faith and work. Again, we recorded this conversation over Zoom, so there may be a little bit of distortion here and there, but the conversation is well worth your time. Southeastern Seminary's mission is to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. Almost all of Southeastern's degrees are available fully online, so whether you're in your living room or the classroom, you can receive high-quality theological education. Get equipped wherever you are today for wherever you're called in the future by visiting sebts.edu. How should Christians think about work? What does the Bible have to say about what we do on Monday through Friday? And is there an inherent dignity in our work? Well, usually Dr. Quinn is the one asking the questions here on the Christ and Culture podcast, but today we're going to turn the tables to pick his brain about this really, really important topic. Dr. Quinn, thank you for letting us pick your brain and chat with you today about faith and work. Pleasure. It's one of my favorite conversations. And Nathaniel, as always, thank you for your good work behind the scenes. And it's fun to uh, to have you joining us on the on the show today. Yeah, we'll make it a rare occasion, a rare occasion. <laughs> so, Dr. Quinn, um, I'm a pastor. You're a pastor. And we think about faith and work. A lot of times as we discuss this in our pews, we hear people talk about work in a variety of ways. So what I want to do is I want to just throw out kind of a, a common saying or a common way of thinking that some people think about work. And I just want to let you respond to that based on, on what the scriptures actually say about this topic. Does that work? Sure, sure. All right, so here's the first thing some people say, some, some well-meaning Christians say about work. They say something like this, work is an inherently bad thing, and it's a product of the fall. How would you respond to that? You know, it's interesting. I, I've never actually heard a parishioner say that. Because a parishioner who had enough sense to, to sort of put this together as part of the biblical story, that it was, it was a result of the fall, would probably also have enough sense to remember that work was installed or required or, or given as a responsibility to our first parents, Adam and Eve, before the fall happened. Now, I have heard scholars, interestingly, I've heard scholars try to make this kind of a, a point that, that work is sort of a, a result of the fall. And to be clear, work is affected by the fall. It's toilsome. It's hard. I, I tend to think of it as gardeners didn't get pricked by the thorns uh, and they didn't sweat and their backs didn't hurt until after Genesis 3. All, all these kinds of things are true. But at the same time, work was part of our human dignity and responsibility in Genesis 1 and 2 before we get to Genesis 3. Um, at the same time, a, a more common, again, I don't hear many people actually say that, but people, they believe that. They act that way. They live that way. And, and maybe even more sinister or as sinister. Uh, is not maybe that, that work's not bad, 
but that work is just neutral. Work is just sort of that grind that you have to get through in order to put food on the table or to get to the things that really matter or the things that you really enjoy. Now, that, that may feel true in our experience, but I want to challenge that biblically, theologically, pastorally, personally. I think that we can think a lot better about that. Okay. What about this saying? Again, maybe someone doesn't phrase it this particular way, but, but the assumption is there. And it's this, pastors and missionaries work is somehow more important than other forms of work. Yeah, that, that too, Nathaniel, is such a common assumption. And that's one that will come out more often than pews. And this, unfortunately, is baked into our history from at least the early fourth century. There's been this mindset that the work of pastors, missionaries, what we might call the ordained among us, are really the most important. That's the most important work. Um, and even sometimes, even at our best, which is still so sad, we lead other people in the pew who really do work hard. They even perhaps make good money. They do a lot of good and advance good in society, but we lead them to believe that their work is merely secular or kind of pagan at best. And really what they're doing is, is footing the bill for missionaries and pastors to do the real work of the ministry. Where I want to push back on that biblically is Ephesians chapter four. I think Ephesians four 11 and 12 is the most important go-to passage for this. And this is where Paul in Ephesians 4, 11, he, he sort of rattles off this four or five-fold gifting of the ministry. He talks about that Christ has equipped those uh, or has, has gifted those who are the apostles, the preacher, teachers, the, the evangelists, and so on, that, he's, that Christ has gifted them in a particular way. And that's true. They are gifted in a unique way. But that's the verse 11 kind of people. But then he, he, then he transitions into our verse 12, where he says those people from verse 11 have been equipped or been gifted to then equip the saints. This is verse 12. Equip the saints for the work of the ministry. The problem is that we too often, we use that word ministry and we assign that to the verse 11 people and say, yeah, it's the, it's the, it's the apostles, the evangelists, the, the pastor, teachers, and prophets. Those are the ones who are in the, quote, ministry. But the way that Paul puts this together doesn't allow us to do that. The ministers are the ones that the every it's every saint there. It's in fact, John Stott calls this uh, every member ministry. He, he draws this out of Ephesians chapter four, that those Paul has gifted or that pose those that Christ has gifted in verse 11 are the ones who are equipping the saints for the work of the ministry. Well, what ministries are they doing? And at that point, I want to zoom out to the whole of the canon of scripture and say they're doing everything else in the kingdom of God. These are the people, these are the stay-at-home moms, and these are politicians, or at least those that we hope to be advancing God's kingdom uh, and the good in politics. Now, these are people who are entrepreneurs or who are uh, public school teachers and coaches. And by the way, who, who are more influential in our kids' lives than coaches and teachers, especially when they get to that place where when they don't want to hear from mom and dad anymore, we call those the teenage years for the most part, they don't really want to hear from us, but we need good coaches, teachers, youth ministers, and others who can speak into their lives um, in, in trusted ways and to continue to advance the, uh, the gospel and the kingdom, even in their own hearts, in their lives, um, and so on. This is all the rest of the work of the ministry that is represented by people in our pews. And our job as pastors, Nathaniel, is to equip them for that. I've heard another way people talk about this, and I think it's very well intended because it is part of the truth, but maybe not the whole truth. And the quote is something like this. Again, I'm paraphrasing. My work only matters because it gives me an opportunity for evangelism. Mm -hmm. My work matters because it gives me a chance to evangelize. Obviously we'd say, yes. I mean, you want to share the gospel with your coworkers, but is that, does that, is that it? I mean, it, 
is that all that we should see our work as is a way to right. a platform to share the gospel? Right. To, just to reinforce what you said, it, it absolutely is an opportunity for evangelism, but it, that's not the end of it. That's not even the beginning of it. Um, the very fact that if you're the barista at the local coffee shop, and this I'm borrowing directly from Dorothy Sayers here, and she has this great, great line where she talks about the first responsibility that our faith has on us is that it demands that we do good work. <laughs> she has this great line referring, she's talking about Jesus here that he, you know, we know him as carpenter before we know him as Christ or before most people know him as Christ. And she has this great line um, where she says, I dare say that neither uh, a crooked table leg or ill-fitting drawer ever came out of the carpenter shop at Nazareth. Now that's before we get into the ministry that we think of was is so significant of Christ, the, his preaching and his uh, his arguing with the religious leaders and his healing uh, and miracles and all that he does, as well as his proclaiming of the kingdom and calling people to repentance, as well as his death and burial and resurrection. All of those things are important, but we also get a Christ that we know as carpenter first and a carpenter who no doubt did good work as well as was a good human being, the best human being, the ideal, the only perfect human being. Yeah, I think you wrote a, an article on our blog a couple of years ago, something called Blue Collar Jesus. And, and the idea being, as you said, and I think you probably even quoted Dorothy Sayers, that, that Jesus vocationally probably spent more time as a carpenter than he did in day-to-day ministry. But yeah. I'm sure in his ministry and, and the ministry of making tables, he did them to the glory of God. Just to see yeah, no, that's exactly right. Can, can you imagine, Nathaniel, any one of us having uh, having like a coffee table that was made by Jesus? Now, here's the <laughs> thing. Not only would it be awesome that it was made by Jesus, but it would inevitably be the best coffee table that you could get. I mean, the, yeah, the, the yeah. craftsmanship, the hands, I mean, everything about it would be just pristine because that's the quality of work that is befitting of Christ. And it's the quality of work that's befitting of people who claim the name of Christ. And that doesn't matter if you're doing woodwork, if you're doing... Uh, IT networking, if you're doing coaching, if you're doing pastoral ministry, mission work, if you're doing art and design and music and on we could go, this is what's befitting of our king. And this is the kind and quality of work that we should do while we also share with our words in evangelism and mission. That's really good. Really good. Kind of shifting gears a little bit, instead of thinking about things we might hear in the church, maybe things we might hear in the culture. And there's a little overlap here. But I think there's a common notion that goes something like this. Everybody should work at a job that they love, right? Mm. Everybody should work at a job that they love. Would you agree with that? Or how, how would we look at that biblically? It's, it's tough. When you add the word should in there, all of a sudden you're, you're weighing it down with this sort of moral imperative that what you get paid to do is something that you absolutely love. And the fact is, most of human history, that's not been their experience. And, and we are lived in a rather we live in a rather privileged time and place where we can even have these kind of conversations. That's important for us to remember. So no, I wouldn't say that. I wouldn't say that people should have a job that they love. I would say it's great if you can, it's really great if you can get paid to do what you love to do. Um, But that's not necessarily the case for every person, probably even not most people. In fact, some of my greatest heroes, just ordinary, no name, you would never know them heroes are, are men and women who fell into a career, fell into a job after they got married and had kids. And they recognized, you know, the higher calling for me is not to do what I love to do per se, but it's to be faithful and take care of my family. And I'm going to go, it's these stories of our grandparents and great grandparents who worked 35, 40, 45 years in jobs that they didn't enjoy, jobs that were grueling, 
But they got up, they put their boots on, they went to work every day. They didn't complain about it. They put food on the table. They took care of their families. And I can't think of a greater calling and a more faithful example of ministry than that. Um, Now, when you get home, if you have a job that you don't necessarily love, uh, but you get home and you have other things, you want to you want to write books or you want to you want to volunteer to coach the local rec league or you want to do something, you know, something else that really feels more to you like a direct ministry and the things that you love to do, then so do so. So be it. And praise God for it. And again, if, if you're able to do the thing that you love and get paid for it, praise God for that, too. But God doesn't owe us that. And I think a lot of times, quite frankly, I'm, I'm picking on our millennials and those below us here. Um, quite frankly, I think we spend way too much time spinning our wheels, doing nothing, trying to figure out how can I get paid for what I love to do? When a lot of times we don't even know what we love to do. We're still trying to figure that much out. Um, and really, we need to just move forward being faithful. Our, our very own Karen Swallow Pryor gave a fantastic talk on this very thing last fall uh, that our listeners can find. Perhaps we can post that in the in the notes here. Uh, but she talked about that very thing, that there's a difference between uh, thinking about vocation or our calling as we have to do what we love to do. Uh, there's a difference between that and recognizing you may be gifted to do something that you're not paid to do. And that's okay too. For uh, a couple of years, I worked at a large church in Raleigh, essentially as a janitor. <laughs> and uh, I remember I was just, as I was go through this giant building, cleaning toilets and bathrooms and whatnot, wrestling with the idea of what am I doing? And it was only later as I heard someone explain uh, about that very vocation. And since what I was doing, what any janitor is doing, is waging biological warfare on the things that would ravage our, our physical bodies. <laughs> it makes it sound a whole lot cooler, doesn't it? Yeah. And I did not love cleaning toilets. But looking back, I can see, man, that was it is a ministry to do that in a sense. Yeah. Just like yeah. most of the vocations, whether you're a truck driver or teacher or construction work, like whatever that is, if you're doing it as a Lord, you're doing it, doing it as ministry. Yeah. And I want to, I want to highlight that. And I didn't, I didn't make this clear enough in my previous answer, because the, the fact is, even if you don't love whatever the job description bullet points are for your, for your nine to five or your five to nine, even if you don't love that, there's almost certainly people, human beings that you come in contact with in one way or another. For some, we work more uh, kind of privately or, or more in solitude, just based on the nature of our work. For others, we have to engage with other people. And I think what's, what's critical to remember is that the greatest commandment is to love God and love other people. Now, if that's true, then regardless of what you're paid to do, when you're interacting with other people, the degree to which we are faithful to love God and to love other people at work the degree to which we're faithful to do that seems to me the degree to which we actually do the work of the ministry. Now, if that's true, then it doesn't really matter where your workplace is, right? It doesn't matter if you're scrubbing toilets. So it doesn't matter if you're stocking shelves insofar as you do those things in a way that genuinely uh, honors God, loves God and loves other people. That is the, I don't know what ministry is if that's not it. Um, To be honest, and, and you've heard me say this before, Nathaniel, but uh, I can sometimes get a little impatient with um, with seminary students or people preparing for pastoral ministry because I've had this conversation multiple times where they'll say, you know, we'll get in a conversation about what do you what do you plan to do in a few years? Well, I, you know, I want to be in pastoral ministry. I can't wait to pastor. And I'll say, OK, what are you doing now? And they will say, well, you know, I'm working at Chick-fil-A and I, I just hate it. And I'll say, what do you hate about it? Well, the people, it just drives me crazy, you know, <laughs> and I want to say, but wait a minute, you're wanting to get into a business where your very job is to live amongst the messiness of the sheep who sometimes bite and, and you're, you can't handle them at Chick-fil-A, what makes you think that you're going to handle them at church? Um, and, and it begins to shift the emphasis and the awareness a bit to, you know what, what we're paid to do is one thing, 
but we can do ministry no matter where we are insofar as we love God and love other people. Yeah, that's a good word. And uh, I could probably, uh, we could probably have a separate podcast on things I learned about ministry while working at Chick-fil-A. No joke about, about <laughs> conflict resolution, about working with people who you may disagree with. I mean, it's really yeah. those per- interpersonal skills that are required if you're in ministry, you really hone those in working in, in every, everyday jobs like that. Um, yeah. Let me ask a question about retirement. What does the Bible have to say about retirement? Is that a biblical concept? How would you counsel someone who's looking towards retirement? Like what, how should we think about that? If we think of retirement as we stop contributing to society, it's unbiblical. So that, that, that in and of itself, when you stop contributing uh, to your church, to society, to your family, you just, you just become little more than a bump on a log. It's just not biblical. If we, if we define retirement as we, we are privileged to live in a context where there are social systems set up to allow us at whatever age that is, 67 and a third or something, it keeps getting pushed back for people like you and me, uh, that where it's set up in such a way as that they have helped us to set money back so that in our later years, when we may not be as strong and healthy, that we can relax a little bit, not have to toil quite as much, but it actually frees us up to do more, to spend more time with our family, to give more to our churches, to do a lot of people who can't wait for that time so they can take mission trips far more often, or just to volunteer in your community and whatever else, that's fantastic. If that's what retirement is, I think it's beautiful. If what we think of retirement is, yeah, I've, I've put in my time and now I'm done completely with family, with church, with society, with any kind of contribution towards the kingdom, then that, that's just unbiblical. I would agree with that entirely. Dr. Quinn, you and Dr. Walter Strickland, also professor here at Southeastern, wrote a book a few years ago called Every Waking Hour. And that book talks a lot about these topics, about helping Christians think well about their work. Tell us about that book. Yeah, thanks. Um, we did. Uh, Walter and I had the great honor. We were asked to write this. This was something that wasn't necessarily on Walter's or my radar at the time, um, but the administration had received a grant from the Kern Foundation where we were going to really, what I think of as kick up the dust on this conversation very specifically. So we taught a class for the first time at Southeastern on faith and work. Um, and then we, we wrote this book. It came out of that, and it was part of the deliverables for that grant. And little did, did Walter or I either one know just how impactful that it would be for us personally, but then also for these kinds of conversations now seven, eight years later. Um, and I still, you know, it's interesting. I, sometimes I tend to think, I, I think I want to, I need to move away from that and get into other things. But then almost every time I, I have that thought, the Lord reminds me of just how important this conversation is, how much it matters. In fact, I, there are very few conversations that I have, especially conversations academic related or book writing, book writing related that impact the pew like this conversation. And it, that shouldn't surprise us, honestly, because if we, you know, if we relegate ministry or the ministers only to those who, uh, who receive a call or accept a call, as we talk about it, to pastoral ministry or mission work, that's a very slim percentage of the whole Christian body. But if we think of the whole Christian body as actually all of us are ministers, according to Ephesians 4 and 2 Corinthians 5, we've been given the ministry of reconciliation. If we see that all of us are ministers, then actually by having this conversation, we activate and then deploy the whole of the body of Christ to do the work of the ministry. We don't just sit around and wait on the next person to, be, to become a pastor or to go overseas as, as a missionary. Actually, we're able to send people back into their workplace every single week to do the work of the ministry. And that's, that's incredibly exciting that the book focuses on those kinds of things. It walks us through kind of Genesis to Revelation, Old Testament, New Testament, 
highlighting key themes about work and vocation. It also kind of situates it in the, the broader doctrines, uh, theological doctrines. And then it gives a lot of practical um, it just insights. You know, Walter and I both would say that the closer I get to your job, uh, the farther away I get from any expertise, right? I, I want to, I need to hear more about your job, whether you're an, you're an insurance salesman or uh, you're an engineer of some sort. I need to hear more about your job. But what I can provide is some basic biblical and theological theory that then begins to integrate and connect with your everyday life, um, especially sort of the, the tangible material parts of your job. And that's, that's what our book begins to do. It's an introduction to that conversation. I think it's a great book. Uh, I've read it myself, highly recommended. Are there other resources you would recommend to believers out there who want to know how to connect faith with their work? Yeah, I think the best book on this is still is still Tim Keller's book, uh, Every Good Endeavor, Tim Keller and Kathy uh, Alsdorf. Um, it's fantastic. It, it really is sort of an all-encompassing approach to this. Now, if you're looking for specifics on your job and how to integrate that, um, you'll want to dive into something more particular. And there's, there's, some good, um, there's some good institutes and organizations who are doing work here. The Kern Foundation is, is continuing to uh, cultivate this conversation. The um, uh, Acton Institute out of Grand Rapids is doing a lot of this, but probably the best that I know is called the Denver Institute for Faith and Work, uh, based out of Denver, Colorado. They have, they have taken up a lot of this conversation that has that has been stirred up over the last 15 to 20 years. And I think probably that they will, they may become sort of the custodians, the chief custodians of this going forward. Uh, also Tom Nelson's work. So Tom Nelson has been a pastor for probably 30 years by this point uh, in the Midwest, I believe. And he's been talking about this. He was talking about this long before it was cool. And, uh, and he still is, I think one of the most articulate and faithful pastors that, that helped to integrate and, and, and to uh, carry forward this, conversation about faith and work in his church. And this is something too, you know, we could have a separate podcast when it comes to how do we do this in our church? Uh, and I'll give you one example there. So here we are now in the season of Lent, right? This second as we're recording this. Um, but before Lent on the church calendar, we're in what's called ordinary time. And while we were in ordinary time, even in our small Baptist church that hasn't always paid a whole lot of attention to the church calendar, we were able to one kind of raise awareness about the church calendar and how we sort of walk through the life of Christ throughout the year and raise awareness of ordinary time as a time that even by its very name, we can say, Hey, we want to pray for uh, all the various, what we might call ordinary vocations in our congregation. So we prayed for people in the construction industry. We pay, prayed for policemen and firefighters and emergency responders. We prayed for uh, coaches and teachers and stay at home moms and all the rest of it just highlighting, hey, look, this this really is important to us, and we want to make that. We don't want to just pray for people once they surrender to the ministry. We want to pray for you as you leave today and go back into your mission field tomorrow. Excellent. One final question. I imagine there's somebody out there, maybe even a, a graduate or a student of Southeastern, who's listening to this and thinking, I hear you. I understand that my job is supposed to matter, but I'm just having a really hard time connecting the dots, and it just feels like I'm you know, just chugging along and really having a hard time. What's one thing you would tell that person, that listener? If the struggle is to connect the dots, then I would say connect first with the great commandment, the great commandment. Uh, and I think that's, an, even though we're a great commission school and rightly we are, it's critical to, to highlight the great commandment here as when Jesus was asked the question, what's the most important thing about living in your world, right? What's the most important commandment? At that point, he didn't say, go, therefore, and, and make disciples. Now, obviously, that's a huge and important imperative that we have to be mindful of. 
but not everybody's able to go. Not everybody's able to to just drop everything and, and take off and, and move overseas or however you want to interpret and apply the Great Commission. But everyone can uh, love God and love other people. And even if you know, even if you're in a, in a situation where you're not able to work, maybe you're disabled, or maybe maybe there's some other reason why you're not able to actually get paid for something. Every chance that you interact with someone else, every time that you talk to another person or engage with another person is an opportunity for ministry because it's an opportunity to love them as yourself. And that's where I think we have to begin in connecting those dots. And then we can move out from there, not just to every human interaction, but even into those places, those broad vocation categories, like your workplace, like your community, like your church, and like your family. These are the these sort of broad Lutheran categories or where Luther helped to remind us of these broad calling or vocation categories. And each one of those are opportunities for love for God and neighbor and therefore opportunities for ministry. Now it's time for On My Bookshelf. This is the part of our show where professors at Southeastern tell us what they're reading now or perhaps a book that they've read in the past and strongly recommend. Dr. Higgins, what is a book that you uh, you want to recommend? So I'm currently this week teaching personal discipleship and disciple making, and I've been reviewing one of my favorite books, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer's Life Together. And so just reviewing that even yesterday, there are several sections where I just sat back and was like, wow, this is incredible. Um, he has a, a section on uh, community and our ideals for Christian community and how often sometimes in our ideals, we push our ideal on uh, onto our idea of what community should be. And so it was just very convicting for me. And then a, a second part, he talks about the ministry of taming our tongue when we um, enter into community with our brothers and sisters and we have a disagreement, he actually points to the fact that when we hold our tongues and tame our tongues, that is a ministry to others. Uh, so I would point people to that book if they're seeking to learn more about Christian community. Absolutely a classic. Thank you, Dr. Higgins. And thank you all for listening. If you enjoyed today's conversation, you can go to Apple Podcast, give us a five-star rating, brief review, very small step, but it helps others find the podcast and, uh, and help us spread the word about the Christ and Culture podcast. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.